You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Stephen M. Ward um, joins me in the studio. Stephen, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. Um, I should say we're taping the show. It's the 1st of December, 2016. Um, And we've got your book on the table, In Love and Struggle, The Revolutionary Lives of James and Grace Lee Boggs. And that's the book we're going to be talking about for this hour. Um, Thanks for picking the music for today's show. Oh, glad to. (laughs) Um, Why the first song to lead us off? Uh, That song by Sam Cooke, A Change Is Gonna Come, is uh, an anthem of sorts of the 1960s and the spirit of of change. Um, And also was a song that James Boggs liked. He like he like James Boggs like the artist Sam Cook Sam Cook and that song so it's um especially appropriate. It's sort of a a tribute to 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 Jimmy Boggs, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. And um, it did one of the songs, one of the upcoming songs is it one of Grace's favorites? <laughs> well, well, Grace um, and Jimmy both liked uh, one of the one of the songs as well. Oh. The next song coming up. And we'll hear it. Yes, we will. We'll hear it soon. Okay, so stay tuned, everybody. Um, So without further ado, I'll read um, the bio in the back of In Love and Struggle, um, and then we'll, we'll fill in some pieces. Stephen M. Ward is associate professor in the Department of Afro American and African Studies and the Residential College at the University of Michigan. So you'd like me to add something to that? <laughs> I know. <laughs> we can start there. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I also I'll say the book published this fall um, yes. by the University of North Carolina Press, and it's in their Justice, Power, and Politics series, um, and which is it's quite interesting because um, on the the jacket cover, it's actually defining that as longer than you had your bio. <laughs> but I'll just read it briefly. The Justice, Power, and Politics series publishes new works in history that explore the myriad struggles for justice battles for power, and shifts in politics that have shaped the United States over time. The series seeks to broaden scholarly debates about America's past as well as to inform public discussions about its future. For more information on the series, visit justicepowerandpolitics.com. Um, so so I can see why they chose your book to publish. Um, when, how long did it take you to write this book, Stephen? And... Um, yeah, tell, can you tell us the story of the book and it's coming to the University of North Carolina Press? Sure, sure. Um, there are a couple of different answers to how long it took me to write it. Um, one answer is uh, 14 years, which is the time that I've been here at U of M. Uh, the idea for the book began with my dissertation research, which was about the Black Power Movement and included a chapter, two chapters on Jimmy and Grace, as well as other people. And in the context, in the course of doing that, um, I made the the what I felt a realization that um, each of them deserved a biography, and then so the, I conducted more began conducting more research into their lives, um, and into the city of Detroit because to understand who they were, James James Boggs and Grace Lee Boggs, 
individually, but especially as a partnership, as a marital and political and intellectual partnership. To understand who they were and what was really special about their partnership requires understanding something about Detroit, which was not just their home, but the place in which they, um, their ideas and their activism uh, generated from, and it was really important to their to their theoretical and practical application of the ideas they developed. So, so I've been research has been researching since um, arriving at U of M in 2002. Um, and also working with Grace, um, both in terms of interview, interviewing her for the book, but also, and really more importantly, in, um, in working with her at the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center to Nurture Community Leadership, of which I'm a board member. Um, and so I wasn't actively write, writing the book during those years, um, but I was learning. And so in that sense, uh, that's why I would say that my answer is that I was working on the book during that time. So it's been... As Sam Cooke's saying, a long time coming. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe another reason why you chose that song to start us right, off. Right, yes. It has that. And, so, and you, so you knew both James Boggs and Grace Lee Boggs. I did not know Jimmy. You didn't? Okay. No, I did not know Jimmy. Um, he died, he passed away in 1993, which as it happens is about the time that I learned of him. I was really? A, yes. How did you, so how did you first, and did you hear about both of them together, or did you hear first about Jimmy Boggs? I heard about him first, but then soon thereafter I learned, heard about her as well. That seems pretty clear in your book. Is that right? That they come together yes. as a partnership. Well, that was important that I wanted to, to make that um, visible, uh, them, them coming together and the importance of their partnership. So I, I learned about them when I was in graduate school in, in 1990. I began graduate school in 1993. Is at the University of Texas in Austin. And I was interested in uh, two related subjects. One is the history of the black power movement in the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s. And the second related topic was uh, black radicalism, the history of black radicals thought. And, um, and so it was in, in with those two interests where I came to learn of uh, the name James Boggs. It was actually the first through, um, studying a man named C.L.R. James, who was written about in the book. Um, who's well-known uh, black radical from Trinidad, spent some time in the U.S. And uh, then had to leave. And right? had to and leave, yes. Living. Did he like then stay in England? Yes, he, he had to leave was... the country in 1953 yeah. and went to England and stayed there for several years and then, then Trinidad. Um, and, but so the years in which C.L.R. James spent in the United States from 1938 to 53, Grace worked with him through almost all of those years. So in the 19, and he passed away himself, C.L.R. James, in 1989, I believe. In the years after that, a lot of attention was paid to him and his writing. His fo- most famous book um, is The Black Jacobins, The History of Toussaint L'Overture in the Haitian Revolution, which he wrote in the 19, 1938. Um, so uh, I was learning about studying C.L.R. James in the 90s, early 90s, and it was in that context that I came across the name James Boggs. Uh, one piece in particular mentioned how for some of the young Detroit radicals in Detroit, black radicals, C.L.R. James was something of an interesting figure to them, but Jimmy Boggs, James Boggs, was, was more um, appealing to them. And so that piqued my interest in learning about him, and then I started reading his writing, and, and as long with that, learning about Grace. So this all happened in 1993-94, so uh, I didn't know it at the time. This is the time that James Boggs passed, but that's when I was learning about him and becoming very interested in him and Grace. And so interesting that you say that the CRL James, like he was the one that at that time yes. you thought he was the the big figure. Yes, and, and, he, and he still is and a big he, figure. Yeah, he still is. But, yeah, but but for my intellectual evolution and for the development of this book, 
CLR James is a starting point, um, but then going in much different directions. And as people will see in the book, CLR James figures in there, including Grace and Jimmy's break with CLR James uh, in the early 1960s. They're, they're into, they're, they were part of an organization together, so that they're split organizationally and uh, politically and ideologically. Correspondence. Yes, the, the, the yeah. organization and the newspaper they published titled Correspondence was their the, the basis. First, they were in the Johnson Forest, Tennessee together. Uh, Grace and, and CLR. CLR co-founded this Marxist small Marxist organization that evolved into the group into the group Correspondence, which you mentioned in the publish, publication of the same title. Um, and then yes, Jimmy and Grace in 1961, 62, and then finally by 1963 has split with CLR. And and so, what was it about like? Because you said you were interested because people like young Detroit Detroit radicals found. Jimmy Boggs perhaps more critical to what was happening in their own, what they were experiencing in their own, um, I don't know, for James Boggs and Grace Lee Boggs, it seems like philosophy was always yes. like the like the same as experience, one and the same. Um, maybe we can talk about that some. Um, uh, but what was Jimmy Boggs doing that was that also engaged you as well as appealed to people and the time too. So the, the, um, I'll give the exact title of the article I was referring to. It was titled young Detroit radicals. And the author is, is Dan Gorgakis, who's the co-author with Marvin Serkin of a book called Detroit. I do mind dying, which is about the history of the league of revolutionary black workers, which is an organization led by people like general Baker and, and other uh, black, um, radicals and, and labor activists in Detroit in the late 60s, early 70s. So this was an essay in a book, a collection of essays about C.L.R. James. So that's where I saw that. And uh, and the piece was saying that Jimmy Boggs, his experience as an auto worker um, was, and his analysis of capitalism uh, and of the auto industry and of the black struggle had some appeal to these young Detroit black radicals. So, so part of his appeal, and they did not they differed ideologically. So, so, so Jimmy, some of Jimmy's analysis of the labor movement, where it was going in the late 60s, early 70s, differed from General Baker and others who were in this group, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. Um, but still, the, the article was making the point that Jimmy's experience and his type of analysis um, was among those intellectual influences on these young radicals. For me, uh, reading Jimmy Boggs in the, in the context of the 1990s and in graduate school, did you read his, um, was it The Notebook? Yes. Like the, yes. Okay. So the first thing that I believe that I read, well, one of the first things I read by, from James Boggs was his first book, published in 1963, yeah. titled The American Revolution, pages from a, black, pages from a Negro Worker's Notebook. Okay. Was, so the title was The American Revolution, the subtitle was Pages from a Negro Worker's Notebook. And that was published in the spring of 1963. It's a slim book, first published as an extended issue of the, the journal Monthly Review. Um, and so that was one of the early things that I read by Jimmy in which he made an analysis of the labor movement and of the rising uh, black movement, the civil rights movement, and, um, and made the argument that with automation, with this technological change that was taking place in American industry, um, that we, we were coming into a new era in which for the first time in human history, perhaps, we had demonstrably the capacity to make um, for the productive capacity to meet all of human needs. So even in 1963, that's when he actually even started thinking about yes. that. He, he more fully articulates it in 1974 with okay. him and Grace in their co-authored book, 
revolution and evolution in the but 20th century. All the way back in 63. But that book in 74 and then and the argument they made forcefully there has its roots in their ideas, which he put forward in 63, yes. Because in that in that that notebook, like in that book, mm-hmm. um, it feels like he's a prophet in yes. a way because he's yes. talking about how automation and what he's seen the very early stages of it is going to like get no one's going to have like people won't have jobs there won't be this way of life that we've been because he's been involved in unions from the very beginning at Chrysler right absolutely and yes and so he he, he began working in the auto plant in the Chrysler in 1940 um so just after the the, the really massive and a transformative wave of the um industrial unionism and the CIO um, in the, from the mid-1930s and the second half of the 30s. So he came in meeting people who had been involved in those struggles and seeing, coming in with the, uh, the, the, this wave of the possibilities of the transformative capacity of the labor movement. And over the next couple of decades, he sees that wane, in part because of what he identifies and others as American workers not um, uh, Extending or carrying forward that sense of transforming the system that it was there in the 30s, but also because precisely as you said, T, because of his analysis of automation, and he was saying that automation is eliminating many job classifications, the number of jobs, the basis upon this mass employment. But also, it's not only doing that he's saying, but it also is meaning means that we have as a society, if we choose to, the capacity where we don't all need to work, and that's what he was saying was was unique in human history where we don't all have we. Society, at least American society, did not require that everyone work for us all to have bread to eat, clothing, and so forth. And that's the key part, isn't yes. it? For us all to have <laughs> bread, clothing, right. shelter. Like, it could be some type of utopia. And, and, and that would not have been the, that wasn't the phrasing he uses, utopia. Right. But, yeah, but, right, that's but, true, yes. But, but you're right, he, he was saying that we can see... If we would see differently, we could see that we can organize society in ways where we don't see that work, having a job, is a requirement of everyone because we are able to produce that which we need. And so you can move from to, to dialectical humanism, well, from yes. dialectical materialism. Exactly. Maybe exactly. we can talk about that sure. in the next quarter. Okay, we'll, let's do we'll, that. we'll take a short break. Today on the program, Stephen M. Ward is here. His book, In Love and Struggle, The Revolutionary Lives of James and Grace Lee Boggs, out this fall with the University of North Carolina Press. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be back. I see trees of green What a wonderful world I see skies of blue And clouds of white The bright blessed day The dark sacred night And I think to myself What a wonderful world The colors of the rainbow So pretty in the sky Are also on the faces Of people going by I see friends shaking hands Saying how do you do 
much more than I ever knew. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on the program, Stephen M. Ward is here. Um, his book on the table with us, In Love and Struggle, The Revolutionary Lives of James and Grace Lee Boggs, um, published this fall by the University of North Carolina Press. Um, so uh, before the break, Stephen, we were talking, <laughs> we were kind of getting into the part of the uh James Boggs and Grace Lee Boggs, they're, they're one of the things that fused them, which you, you show so cl- close, uh, clearly in your book, is this, their devotion to philosophy and to the, the questioning and not getting stuck in ideas, um, as well as a, like this, the, uh, their lives dedicated to revolution. Um, and you mentioned that he, so he, and both of them are so rooted in Detroit. Like I, um, they, they weren't from Detroit. Um, I don't know. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, I think it's better if you talk about this okay. <laughs> than if I do. About their, maybe, their past? Maybe, yeah, how they got to Detroit. Okay. And maybe the, maybe the brief version, because I know it's right, all right. in the so book. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. But, yeah. So quickly, yeah, they were, as you said, neither was from Detroit, but, but both made Detroit their home. So Grace was born in Providence, Rhode Island in 1915, raised in New York. She went to school first for undergrad at at, um, Barnard College, now part of Columbia, and then earned a Ph.D. in philosophy from Bryn Mawr in 1940. A Ph.D. in philosophy in 1940. Yes, Yes. so so you can see already she is um, a unique and exceptional person in in, um, many regards. At the same time, 1940, when she earned that PhD, and, that, and then actually moved to Chicago, which shortly after that, which um, back to New York for a period, and then a couple of months, and then went to Chicago, which is going to set her on her path to becoming a revolutionary. Jimmy, at that about that same moment, is is embarking on what will set him on his path to being a revolutionary. So he was born in 1919 in Marion Junction, Alabama, and raised in Alabama. Went to high school in um, outside of Marion Junction, outside of Selma, um, in Bessemer. And then he graduated in 1937 from high school, and shortly after, and immediately came to Detroit. Spent spent a few and months. And actually, there. that was even something that, um, from the book, from reading the story, his the, your story about his background, um, it it was like he had to like actually move in maybe with another family member to finish high school to go right like mm-hmm. like, and so he he wanted to finish, but it was also there was an obstacle in his path like the. But he did it. Well, yeah, he had to travel a distance to go to high school, and he went to what actually was a one of the few uh, black high schools that had, it was necessarily going to be going to a segregated high school, a black high school. Um, but there were some um, the environment was 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 nurturing, so it was difficult for him to make this distance, and he did have to um, spend time in another family. But he's able to do that, and. Um, he identified that as part of a intellectually and otherwise a nurturing experience for him. Um, and where he, he learned a lot, he grew, and there was a launching pad for him to, to as many African Americans did from Alabama and other parts of the South, to go north. And so, which he did in 1937, traveled around a bit, as he said, he hobo, so rode the freight, rode the freight train out west, came back um, to Alabama, m- married his first, first wife, Annie, and then they came back by 1938 or so to Detroit, and with the, with the hope of earning of getting a job in the auto factory, an auto factory, which he did in 1940. 
And so at that point, he began, uh, as I would suggest, his path towards becoming a revolutionary. So Grace in Chicago becomes part of this organization, which is part of the broader Trotskyist movement, um, a Marxist radical space. While at the same time, Jimmy is working in the auto factory, becoming a labor activist, um, a grassroots um, rank-and-file activist, and an activist in the Detroit's black community. And so for the next decade, he's doing that in Detroit, making his home in Detroit, um, engaging in the radical politics and the black politics of the city, while Grace is engaging in in, in Chicago in those same politics. Um, and by the early 50s, they, Grace, the organization that Grace was a part of with CLR James decided to move their, their, their base to Detroit. And, so, and she decided to move to Detroit in 1953. And that's when they get to, Jimmy and Grace get together. They're part of the same organization. Jimmy became part of this organization. Each of them, by this time, has committed themselves to being a revolutionary, to thinking about and trying to bring about what they would later conceptualize as the next American Revolution, but a distinctly American Revolution. That's um, not a. I mean, that's an inter- You say it quite casually, you know, because you've been living with this mm-hmm. book and these ideas for so long. But that's. That's quite a commitment. That's something, isn't it? It, it, cer- it certainly is. And the path each of them traveled to come to that commitment is, are in and of themselves significant. And then when they join together, that, that, that the fusion, the, the combination of their their backgrounds before they became political activists, and then what they how they developed over the course of the dozen or so years before they met each other, all are the ingredients for this really remarkable generative partnership that they create together. So yes, it's remarkable that, that they made those commitments, and then another level of remarkable, if you will, right? The way in which they together grew those that commitment, um, that commitments, namely to to building a revolution that they thought was appropriate for the United States. The point being that revolu- they're, they're thinking about revolution constantly changed, but they believe that that we all have the capacity and they were taking the responsibility to create a revolution in their society. And, and that for them, that not, that may make an analysis of, in this case, United States and mid 20th century United States in determining what were the, what was the basis for revolutionary change in the society in this time. And part of this, um, their, their thinking and as it was changing was responsible for the break with CRL James. Yes. yes. Um, because he wanted to keep the focus outward, like elsewhere in the world, like yes. tracking. And that's where like a lot of his scholarship was rooted, even mm-hmm. in Europe, right, or colonialism yes. in that particular frame. So, yeah, he, he, he and others in their organization who agreed with C.L.R. James want, um, wanted to continue to have a, a, a broader focus, U.S., but also other areas. Jimmy and Grace were increasingly, not out of any sense of... Uh, a, a disregard for the rest of the world, but out of their sense of what it meant to be a revolutionary and the responsibility they were taking to be a revolutionary meant that they should try to conceive and enact revolution in their society. Moreover, the the role that the United States played in the world and the stage of economic development to which they believe the United States had reached meant that they had a that the Ameri- the revolution in the United States to be necessarily had to be different than it would be in other places, as it had been in the Russian Revolution or. Uh, anti-colonial revolutions or the Cuban revolution, the U.S. revolution would necessarily have to be different. And those of us, they, as they thought, who are revolutionaries in this country have the responsibility to do that. So that was a part of the basis of their split with CLR. Another r- related 
part, but 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 having its own independent um, uh, weight is their analysis of the the industrial working class. So CLR still maintained that idea from their understanding of Marxism that the industrial working class was the revolutionary agent. That 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 social force, right. that sector of society, which as they as he saw it, by virtue of their place in the economy and in and what Marxist theory said, they, the industrial workers, would lead the revolution. Jimmy and Grace were coming to, to challenge that based on their what his experiences in the plant, their experiences in Detroit, their analysis of the labor movement and of the black struggle. And that was an important part of their break with CLR in the early 60s. So what kind of um, power or energy did they see then in the black power movement? Because that became what they believed would be the fulcrum. For Absolutely. the revolution. Absolutely, yes, for, for that period. So, again, I, I want to uh, make sure I'm saying it clearly that they were from the early 40s to the rest of their lives. Jimmy passed in 93, Grace passed this last year in 2015. They were self-consciously revolutionaries, or the word they often use, Jimmy in particular, revolutionist, which to them meant that they developed revolutionary theory, that they carry, uh, use that theory to inform their practice, and as you said earlier, they engaged in what they saw, how they conceptualized dialectical thinking, which meant for them that they not be, well, one is a sense of how change happens, that change happens through internal contradictions, not not only or primarily through external forces. And that um, it was necessary for a revolutionist to be mindful of that and to recognize the contradictions and to not be stuck in ideas. The idea being that as internal contradictions devolve, evolve, the new realities are created. As social movements evolve and make changes, the new social realities are created. And their job as revolutionists was to recognize this and to recognize the need for ideas and theory that could speak to these new realities. That sounds like when you say it, it sounds like, oh, of course, Stephen. Of course. But the thing is, when you're actually living right, it, as people right. are, and you become as determined and devoted, and your life is are these ideas right. in some ways, right. some revolutionaries or some people or some public civil servants or wh whatever it is they're not maybe able to change exactly because you've invested so much exactly. and how can what you believe be wrong or what you've been working towards right and, and that that is precisely what, how they um they saw it's a challenge i mean they saw that as happening and and believe that what they should do and others who would be revolutionaries should do is to not again be stuck in those old ideas uh and so you you asked about the the black power movement so the so when jimmy and grace broke with clr in the early six early 60s when jimmy wrote the, the american revolution when they were making this analysis of automation and of the black struggle the black power movement had not emerged yet it would emerge in the mid-1960s but the the the, the uh the the the, the, the uh, framework and the groundwork, rather, for the black power movement was already in place. And so their focus was, their analysis was that the black struggle, so we use the black struggle to incorporate civil rights and black power, was pushing, bringing forth questions which were not just about material gain, so there was that, but also material needs, but also about moral questions and about the, what type of society we were going to have in, in fundamental ways. And so they said, because of that, they could see the black power movement, I'm sorry, the black struggle as having the potential to overcome the industrial working class as its agent of change in America at this point in the early mid-60s. So that would be where the energy, like where yes. should be acknowledged yes. that it's no longer. 
and, and then they can and this grew as the as the, I'm sorry as the Black Power movement emerged in the mid and late 1960s, um, and so they saw the energy coming from the Black Power movement as having the potential, not automatically so, but the potential to really transform society. And that brings me quickly to um, another part of my answer to your early question about what I read. One of the early pieces I read by James Boggs was an essay he wrote in 1969 called The Myth, titled The Myth and Irrationality of Black Capitalism. Uh, and that was, um, that, that spoke to my budding interest in, in developing a, a critique of capitalism in the very clear-eyed analysis he put in that piece, which was engaged, which was emerged out of debates that were happening in, in the late 60s about race and economics and the, the, the direction of the black struggle, um, was, a, was a powerfully drew me in to wanting to know more about him and Grace, their ideas and where those ideas came from. I'll have to read that because I'm very interested to also know if his voice on the page is similar to the voice, like his speaking voice that you're able to hear on like some YouTube interviews or so. Um, and you've probably maybe researched and had access to others. So maybe we could talk about sure, that sure. and talk about grace in let's, the next quarter. Let's do that. Okay. Um, today on Living Writers, Stephen M. Ward is here. His book, In Love and Struggle, The Revolutionary Lives of James and Grace Lee Boggs. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in, um, I'm glad you did, because today Stephen M. Ward is here on the program In Love and Struggle, The Revolutionary Lives of James and Grace Lee Boggs, um, out this fall um, from the University of North Carolina Press. Stephen, right before the break, we were talking about um, the voice on the page, like when our writing speaks for us when we can't be there to speak in person. Um, And James Boggs was it seems like an incredibly charismatic person in person dynamic people were drawn to him some warmth um uh so what was your what was it like for you because you didn't you didn't meet him right but these books changed how you thought how right. you saw right so world. so i first encountered his voice as you're suggesting through his writings and i found his voice to be uh, clear um, and penetrating in the sense of it was going towards going to questions that I was asking and also opening up new questions for me to ask. So I found his his voice um, v- very appealing, um, in- in- nurturing in an intellectual sense. Well, because it could, it, it, you could connect to it, but then it also then challenged you. Absolutely. I, I, I could connect to it in some ways. It, it, it spoke to the history that I wanted to study and it challenged me to think differently 
about some things I was thinking about. Uh, for instance, um, the, the ideological development of the Black Power movement, and it also encouraged me to think about things I had not thought about. For instance, the importance of techno- the 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 way that technological change, such as automation, is part of um, how social movements, how society changes, and how social movements can or should respond to that. So his voice in the sense of reading was r- really pers- powerful for me personally and you know intellectually um in terms of his actual voice i was, i never as you referenced i never heard myself but i have heard recordings and i was able to speak with many people who knew him and one of the things that he said about his voice that, that his speaking voice that grace said and others said is that he never let go of his alabamese in other words his strong alabama accent and which, because uh, you know that the documentary on Grace yes. Bugs, the evolution of a, an American revolutionary, yes. right? Mm-hmm. They subtitled Jimmy. Yes, they did. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, okay, it is helping. Thanks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because at first I was like, yes. that's odd. That, that, that's a that's a very good illustration <laughs> of it. So the, the the documentary you're referring to was done by a woman named Grace Lee, no, no relation to Grace Lee Boggs, and and her colleagues, and they did a, a great job of showing Grace's own evolution and Jimmy as, as a part of that. So, yes, they, they made the decision to subtitle his voice. And then there's, they're, they're showing, letting us hear and showing how his... he For one thing, it, that's one place where we see how Grace and Jimmy were very different people, which we can come back to. I think it's important we can come back to that. Um, but also his speaking voice. So you, you described him as charismatic, which I think to a point is accurate. But another way you describe him is even more accurate, which is warm. So, and, you know, in my... Getting to know Grace and my research into Grace and Jimmy, which is how I, the only way I had to know about Jimmy's voice was that in, in his his manner of engagement, intellectually, politically, personally, was that people described him as warm, as a very warm, um, caring person, and so his in terms of being a he wasn't charismatic in the traditional or maybe standard sense of a charismatic speaker who gets up in front of the crowd and riles everyone up. I mean, he, he could do that to some extent, but that was not his main strength or his main activity. Um, but that warmth, that interaction with people was something that people who knew him spoke much about. In addition to his Alabamese, in addition to his thick accent, he didn't always speak with standard, using standard English. He would speak with what people would say a Southern dialect or, or um, broken English, uh, black English, various various characterizations. Um, subject verb misagreement and and uh, the, the uh, contorting of words, let's say, <laughs> stubbornly so in a way, like uh, where he was yes. like, it's identity, yes, and yes. I don't need to give it up, yes. Like, why do I need to take on your identity? Yes, yes. right. I guess that's what I was thinking while reading the book. I, I, that's 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 certainly part of it. Um, I think that probably evolved over some time to the point where pe- many people who know him later in life that was very clearly there. So after decades of him having the speaking, using his accent and not, not relinquishing it, he right. came to say, just as you said, this is how, who I am and how I speak. Um, you, you should learn to understand me. And so, so that, that is another element of his voice, which I came to learn through the research. And, and so I'll, research, when I say research, I mean, in the, in the, traditional historical research of archives, but not only that. I mean, talking with people, formal interviews, but also just talking to people, getting to know people, um, and, and learning about things that Jimmy and Grace did or were involved in through these relationships I developed with people. Uh, and so that um, is particularly the case with Grace herself. Jimmy, I did not have a chance to know. Grace, I did have a chance to know. I met Grace um, around 1999 
when I first began doing this research on them. I had been reading about them for several years, but when I was actually um, seriously researching them, I, I met her and came to Detroit uh, and interviewed her. What was that like to have been, she was such a part of your research it was for exciting. several years, and then you're going to meet the, the, the real person? It was exciting, but even more so, it was um, it was a word which I'm using a lot in describing and talking about them. Generative. So, in other words, I didn't. The way that she entertained someone who contacts her for interview was not just to schedule the time, sit down and talk. But when you come to interview, be, to interview Grace, she's going to give you something. She's going to ask you some questions about yourself, what you're doing. She's going to give you something to read. She's going to ask you, what are you thinking about? these days about whatever's happening in the world. She's going to ask you about what are you doing in your community. And so there's an interaction there, which is exciting, but also um, it's generative in the sense that it creates a new space for us to interact. And it, and it creates something for me beyond just the, the goal of getting information for as part of this research. Definitely so person to person, not yes. you going to like learn from like the, Absolutely. the giver of this type of knowledge. Or as something. much as I did learn from her, that's, right. that is not the, the whole of the interaction. So that's why the word, I want to be cautious or in using the word research because there is that standard research, but there's more, there was much more involved. It sounds more human. It's more human and it's, it's more, it's more creative. I think it's, yes. it's more intellectually creative. So I met her around 1999 2000, and then um, I came to U of M in 2002, having already met her and continued to develop that relationship. And actually, soon thereafter, I joined the board of the James and, Gra- James and Grace Lee Box Center to Nurture Community Leadership. And I'm still a board member, which was created in 1994 95 after Jimmy's passing, um, which created this new organization and ended up being the, the base for Grace's continued political activity through much of the rest of her life. And it's a community center, but yes. is it also a school, or is the school separate? The school is separate. So, okay. so there are two separate entities which, of course, have a relationship to each other. The first is what we just mentioned, the James and Grace Lee Boggs Center to Nurture Community Leadership, founded in 1995. So I started in 94, formally founded in 1995. The school was opened just a few years ago, the James and Grace Lee Boggs School, um, opened by some educators who had been closely associated with and, and um, worked with Grace and other people as part of the, the Box Center, um, Julia Putnam, Amanda Rossman, two of the main people involved, um, Marisela Teachworthy as well. And so they, had, they were working for several years to create a school and then asked Grace if they could name the school after Grace and Jimmy. And if I have the story correct, Grace... Um, agreed after some some conversation to to, to uh, clarify why it is they wanted to do name the school after her and, and Jimmy and what it is they plan to do with the school. Uh, Amanda, or I should say, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Julia is the principal of the school. Julia was also one of the first, perhaps the first volunteers in the organization that Grace and Jimmy founded along with others in 1992 called Detroit Summer. Well, it, it was a program in 1992. It, it subsequently became an organization and a, a, a collective. Um, so as a high school student, Julia was part of Detroit Summer, met Jimmy and Grace then, uh, so had the new Jimmy for about a year and, and knew Grace well beyond that. So, But it uh, seems like then they're changing young people's lives by their presence in the community and what yes, they're... Yes. Um, 
I don't know, inviting young people in to be a part of even like Detroit. at the school. Yeah, or or I guess oh this no, this Detroit, Detroit summer. summer absolutely. So, so that made a change so that then Julia becomes maybe absolutely fueled by. Yes, you're exactly right. So the, the way I just describe, explain what those two things are, the Bog Center and the Bog School, left out a whole lot of important history and relationships, and which, which your comment speaks to. So absolutely, Julia, um, and she has written about this and speaks about it, can you know obviously do much fuller explanation of this, but Julia was nurtured by that relationship where Jimmy and Grace, yes, as you said, they created an organization with, or a program, Detroit Summer, which was designed to bring in young people, high school age, giving them a space where they could contribute to their communities on the idea that says you have the capacity to be part of transforming your community in this city. Yeah. Yes. And, and so Julia do it. <laughs> experienced that and became an educator. And so, yes, that nurturing, that relationship, those set of relationships, and there are many other people involved with who she had relationships, other activists and thinkers, um, is part of that which created the Bog School. School. I'll, I'll mention briefly that part of, the, uh, materially or concretely, uh, Julia and Amanda and others were part of conversations which uh, met at the Bog Center over several years about the concept of education. Excuse me. <clears throat> about... Um, envisioning a new, uh, reimagining what education could be. And it was out of those conversations, in large part, that they founded the school. So there is there are several steps along the way uh, between Detroit Summer and the founding of the school. So conversations at the Bog Center, so a place where community can gather and then are um, somehow... Um, not invited doesn't sound like the right word, like to have conversations, like somehow... Um, and not compelled sounds too forced. <laughs> well, uh, but like the opportunity, or, op- the opportunity to to uh, to create, to, to to share, and to work with people and to create, uh, and to to develop ideas. It's very much about developing ideas. So yes, the, the the conversations at the Bog Center, which grew out of in part Grace's engagement with ideas about education, which go back to the 1960s, even when she substitute was a substitute teacher in Detroit public schools, and she wrote many pieces about education talking about Grace, she was part of the um, community control of schools movement among black Detroiters in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, she, so she wrote about education quite a bit, and, and including a, a chapter in her, her last book, The Next American Revolution, um, where she has a chapter about her ideas about reimagining education. Um, so th- that was all part of the this series of engagements and relationships and conversations out of which the, the Bog School was created. And and we should say that um, encourage people to to learn about the Bog School um, and its philosophy of place based education and how they arrived at, at that idea of wanting to create a school in which the students were not the purpose of education was not to for students to learn have a pathway out of their community, but rather to be active participants in transforming their community. Right. And and empowered to do so. Exactly, yes. Even as kids, yes. right? Like, Absolutely. don't o- overlook, like, the like little kids have agency. Right, and, they and, have agency, they have the capacity, and um, and this was, you know, to get designed to give them the space to see that and to enact that. And so... Did you, I wanted to ask actually, Stephen, before we take our short break, did you ever go to, um, was it 
3601 Field Street? Yes. I can't, I can't find my where I Anyway, so is because was that their home? 3601 Field Street. Jimmy's yes. home. Yes. And, and is that where you first met Grace? When you first met her, did she invite you to the house? Yes. So their home, 3061 Field Street, is the home they shared together for three decades. They moved there in 1962. They had, they had been living elsewhere. On the, this is on the east side of Detroit. They lived near there. They moved into that home in 62, spent the rest of their life there together, and Grace spent the rest of her life there after Jimmy passed. They lived on the uh, downstairs flat of this two-flat home. And the box center, which I mentioned earlier, which was created in 1995, is, ex- exists on the upper floor of that, that home, 3061 Field Street. So Grace's home was there, and the box center was there, and, and remains there now. So I've spent, yes, many, many... Um, wonderful hours at the Box Center, at, at that address, 3061 Field Street, and it, including, yes, as you asked, that's where I first met her and first had a conversation with her. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, maybe maybe you'll tell us about some of those talks with Grace. Sure. Um, sure. Today on the program, Stephen M. Ward is here. His book, In Love and Struggle, The Revolutionary Lives of James and Grace Lee Boggs. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Stephen M. Ward is here. His book, published by the University of North Carolina Press this fall, In Love and Struggle, The Revolutionary Lives of James and Grace Lee Boggs. This hour, we've been talking about Jimmy and Grace. Um, And when we just took the short break, we were talking about their home and, and sort of what it means to you, and maybe now what it symbolizes perhaps to the the community um, can you can you talk about some of the things that i don 't know like knowing grace because I only get I got to see her when she came and spoke at Rackham okay um, was that for Detroit movement or I, yeah, Detroit uh, movement this, city uh-huh. yes mm-hmm. yeah, which was an event we had uh, Shortly after, right around the time that the documentary we, we discussed earlier was released. And so, so they, they showed it, yeah, we, didn't they? There. We screened the documentary, yeah, screened. had a conversation uh, with Grace and um, Robin Kelly, the historian Robin Kelly, who now teaches at UCLA. Um, will be here, he will be here on campus next semester, by the way. Um, so Grace spoke on campus many times, actually. The, the earliest time that J- yes. Jimmy and Grace <laughs> was in the early 1960s, actually, when they were on campus. 
And uh, Grace was the keynote speaker for our, our 35th anniversary of the founding of the Center for Afro-American and African Studies, which is now the Department of Afro-American and African Studies. One of the early members of that faculty may have been a founding member, but if, if not founding very early, is a man named, an architect named Jim Chaffers. Uh, Jim worked with a group called GROW, Grassroots Organization of Workers in Detroit in the early uh, 70s, and got to know Jimmy and Grace through that work. And he had Jimmy and Grace speak to his class, among the many times they, they were on campus. Every fall from the earlier mid-70s um, until, I think every fall until Jimmy's passing, 93, and then Grace came for several years after that. In fact, when I came, when I arrived at U of M in 2002, she was still speaking in Jim's class every year. Jim retired a few years ago. Um, but that space that he created was generative for, for many students, uh, including the the, um, the founders of Avalon Bakery. I believe they were in, in that class. They, they heard Jimmy and Grace speak when they were U of M students. I believe it was in one of Jim's classes. Uh, Avalon Bakery is an important um, business institution in um, a, a small, you know, local business in Detroit. Um, so I, I mentioned those connections because these networks and these relationships are an important part of who and Jimmy, Jimmy and Grace were and what they did. And perhaps most importantly, the, the impact and the legacies of, of what they and others around them, what they, what they did. Um, and, and all of that, speaks to the, the your question about um, thirty sixty one Field Street and 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 my interactions with Grace. Can you can you tell us about some of your memories of her, Stephen? That maybe didn't make it into the book, but definitely. Sure, sure. Is oh. they're all the same in the writing of it? <laughs> um, you said you're asking if they're all the same. No, oh, no, no. Oh no, oh. no. Um, it's like that. The they're just like they're there somehow because oh, of the yes, writing that they you are. actually made this book. Absolutely, as, yes, or, you're like, right. You're right. In a way, that's what I meant. But gotcha. I'm sort of trailed off there. <laughs> but yeah, what are your what what are some of your stories with Grace, Stephen? Um, I don't know how many uh, s- stories I have of myself with Grace. Um, the the first time I met her, or one of the first times, it may have been the first time I met her when I, c- I came to visit her to interview her. She um, invited me to, to come and stay for a couple of nights. So I came and stayed upstairs. And the the time I came, I think she scheduled it such that there would be other people for people here for me to meet. So for her, again, it was not just about wow. this is a graduate student who wants to interview me. This was about introducing exactly, you to others and exactly. forming another link in the network yes. of activists exactly. without, and thinkers. W- without me conscious or aware of that at the time but that and that that was what she did that's how she she grew at least grew into being that being a very much a part of her Mm. how how she interacted with people so i think a a board meeting was happening at the bog center at that time there were board members who were from out of state um or out of the city other parts of the state people to come in so i came during that weekend was able to meet many people interview some of them so, so it's no coincidence you're a member of the board to this day. Well, <laughs> yes, right. but again, without me realizing right. at the time. Right. So, um, and I don't think that was Grace's vision per se, but but Grace's practice led to that. Absolutely, absolutely. So I got to meet other other people, people who I had read about, for instance, in Grace's uh, autobiography. So, um, 
your, your, your listeners who are familiar with Grace will probably know that she wrote an autobiography titled Living for Change, published in 1998. Um, and, and by the way, I should say that's an important part of my and many other people coming to know more about Grace. So I had already knew, I learned about her and Jimmy in the early 90s, been reading their material. So when her book came out, it was really exciting and, and added more to my both what I knew about her and wanted to know about her. So I'm coming to, vit, to interview her in, in the aftermath, so to speak, or shortly after the release of that book and me reading it and, and really deciding that I wanted to do this research. So that's one story that um, she brought me, her, it was her regular practice brought me, it was an early point in bringing me into, into these networks. Um, Are there so did you did you meet with her often, Stephen, or was it more like when you were with her, it was more you were doing something, and so it was part of something that was happening, or the the latter, well both, but more so, even more so the latter. So, in my first couple of years here, I guess, um, well throughout, I, I I joined the Box Center board shortly after I arrived here, so we were comrades in that sense we were members of the same because she, she was also on the board i think officially she was the president of the board so much of my interactions with her were in the context of doing activities of the, of the box center board um i also was interviewing her so in those, what i was starting to say is in the first couple of years i consciously interviewed her set time to, to sit down and ask her questions prepare questions and did and, you tape it yes and you have and, audio or, some, or, some audio some video oh, okay. so, so several hours um, of those recordings. So I was doing those over a few years. At the same time, I was also, I was also seeing her at board meetings or just coming to, to her house to do other things with her. And in fact, as I described, I think a bit in the acknowledgments, um, or at least make reference to, she would take me places. So this is when she was still driving. So sometimes she would take me to places because she would know there would be people there who I could meet, who would be useful for me to meet, to talk to, to about her, about Jimmy in particular, or about the movement activities they had been engaged in in the 60s or 70s or 80s. Um, so... I remember going with her, for instance, to a funeral. Um, uh, Bloom. It was one of the members of um, the networks that were involved with a group called Uhuru. Um, uh, Or or actually or with um, uh, the Henry brothers, Milton and Richard Henry, um, and their organization, GOAL, I'm sorry. GOAL is an acronym for for a group called Group on Advanced Leadership which Richard and Milton Henry and others founded in the early 1960s, a Detroit activist group that led to the Malcolm X Society and a few other groups and eventually the, the um, Republic of New Africa in the late 60s. But at any rate, Grace had me take her to, the, to this gentleman's funeral. I was apprehensive of going to a funeral for, of a person I didn't know. Um, but she, knowing that the atmosphere that would be there and that there would be a lot of uh, former activists and, and people in those networks, she had the the foresight that it would be okay for me to attend, um, and it would be good for me to attend. And, and, part, and I should say this was not just because Grace was trying to help me to do my research, but mm-hmm. I think Grace had a sense that if I'm going to do this work, if I'm going to write this book on her and Jimmy, if I'm going to be writing the history of the movements of which they were a part, that I had a responsibility to to do it in a way where I was really engaging with people and and not um, and moving beyond what standard historical practice might suggest. So these these relationships, these networks, getting to know people, she, she thought um, almost as a matter of course was very important. And she, I, I learned that essentially from her. 
So that exa- that's that little anecdote is one example of that. Yeah. So when you went there, were you were you were you did you stay next to her? I sat next to her. Yes. And yes. and then when people were, did you stay with her as you walked around? Like I did. Just picturing Awkwardly you guys so. there. Awkwardly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, but. It, it was less awkward than I anticipated. I mean, people, it was welcoming, and I, I did meet people. But, yes, I stayed, sat with her, stayed with her. She introduced me to people. And so and what, from, from In Love and Struggle, the revolutionary lives of James and Grace Lee Boggs, Stephen, what, like, what do you want people to most understand about their lives like in this, so, and this, certain, this time? So... I'll give an unorthodox, and I hope it doesn't seem like a smart aleck answer, but I, That's okay. I don't I don't really feel uh, inclined to to um, have an answer to that. In other words, I don't. I'm not so much concerned with. I want to make sure people get this. I mean, there's some things I want to make sure that I I have faithfully captured and described, but in terms of what people take away from it, I don't have a, a clear a clear answer to that. I thought you were going to say don't get stuck in old ideas. <laughs> I had my money on that. <laughs> Thanks. Well, sorry. <laughs> no, I, no, I, but and a, and a, yeah, because well, it's complicated, well, isn't I, it? Because you're charting a course and looking at their lives for such a stretch of time. Well, I, and I was going to follow up and this is where I hope it's not smart it because this may be actually answering what you're asking. I was going to follow up with I do have a sense of what I what I think is important. What, what I learned from them, which is not exactly the same thing, but related to what I think is important. And I do have a sense of what I think is important about their ideas and their legacy and how that can be useful, useful today. Um, but especially so, today. Especially today. Um, including a, a, a way of thinking and a way of, more importantly, of, of combining ideas and practice. That was really important to them. So... I, I, what I was saying, I don't want to presume what I think most people should get, but I would, I would hope that this book helps people to see how that ideas matter, how they, they matter to Jimmy and Grace, and how Jimmy and Grace's continual practice, continual... Um, uh, um, Questioning? Well, their, their, their uh, method, if you will, of combining theory and practice. So, and questioning is essential to that. And so, they, so I would hope that the book, again, um, gives a faithful rendering of that and that people read it, find that useful, not just for helping them understand who Jimmy and Grace were, which is in and of itself is useful, but for their own thinking about what we do today. In their own lives. In their own lives. Their own struggle. In their own struggles. Be their part own of the struggle. Yes. Yes. Um, thank you so much. Stephen M. Ward, his book, In Love and Struggle, The Revolutionary Lives of James and Grace Lee Boggs. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Yeah. WCBN FM in 
going to let him play. Walton takes it across the timeline. Gets a screen for field foul. Gives it back out to Dawkins. Back to Walton. Open three from the left wing. He got it! Derek Walton ties the game! The team, the team, the team. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm your host, Andrew Hausen. We also have Austin Falco and Morris Fabry on the other side of the glass. Uh, Michigan basketball coming off a important victory, should we say, against Texas last night. 53-50. It wasn't pretty, but they got the job done. So that's going to be the main topic of discussion. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet at us at WCBN Sports. Call in 734-763-3500. So feel free to call in. We'd love to hear from our listeners. And we're going to kick things off with that basketball discussion. What were your initial thoughts on this game? Michigan not looking good, but able to get the job done. Well, you know, I'm not exactly the best versed in Big 12 basketball, but heading into the game, uh, you know, it was pegged as kind of a matchup with a Texas team that's expected to underwhelm this season, and I was confused because, you know, that's a tournament team last year led by a very good coach and Shaka Smart. Uh, I would think that they'd be kind of on upward trajectory, but once the game kicked off, it was pretty apparent why uh, Texas is pegged to lose a lot of games. It's because they don't have many good players outside of Tevin Mack, who is going absolutely bonkers from the outside. Not a very good Texas team. Uh, Michigan obviously favored to win at home, and they did so. It was an ugly game. It was uh, an unpleasant game for the most part, and I just got to thank Billy Donlin for the influence he's exerted